When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Tonight's Women to Watch program features an encore of some of our favorite interviews with Watch Team members. As always, visit womentowatch.net for the real story behind the title. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And I'm going to be joined in just a moment by Dr. Marianne Ritchie, the Associate Professor of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, who practices gastroenterology. Uh, Before we get started, I want to give out our website. Make sure that you check out all of the things related to the show at Women to Watch. Net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to follow us on social media as well. We're on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So I'm very, very excited to have with me uh, a really wonderful, successful local woman to the Philadelphia area with me in the studio tonight. And again, her name is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. She's the Associate Professor of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and I welcome you to the show. Thank you, Sue. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to talk about your life um, growing up as a, as a young lady and a little bit about your years at Jefferson. And um, we'll talk about uh, some other exciting things that you're involved in. You're, you're a very busy lady. Um, but I'd like to get started with the very young Marianne Ritchie and find out a little bit about who you were and what led you to take this path. Thank you. Well, I feel, Sue, as though I've led a charmed life because I had great parents from the very start. I'm the youngest of four sisters, uh, the oldest two of whom were identical twins, and that was a novelty. And um, my third sister is probably about four and a half years younger than they, and I'm I'm the baby. And uh, my dad was a funeral director, which was an interesting childhood. None of us took over the business, much to his dismay. Um, <laughs> but as we all grew up, um, every all the sisters went on after high school. To, one was a nurse, two teachers, and I went on to medical school. And each of us moved away for a few years. But then after a few years of being away, we all moved back 
and it's almost like a Ritchie compound. My parents lived in the center, and the other, the four of us live about 10 minutes apart. So there was a TV show when we were little called The King Family, and it was singing sisters, and they brought their children on the show. And <laughs> Anyway, it, we had this Ritchie compound with 16 grandchildren, Wow! first cousins, all of whom are great friends, have all grown up together. And I just left my one nephew's christening, and they were all there. And uh, my nephew's baby's christening, I should say. And it really, I, I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have the strength from my extended family. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing. Not everybody has that. Yeah. I, I'd love to know how you developed the confidence um, as a young girl to pursue med school. You know, that's a, that's a scary endeavor. And as the youngest of four, I'll say it's, it's kind of unusual for the youngest to be that ambitious if we want to talk about you know, the placement of children. When did that confidence develop? You know, that's an interesting question, and I've never put it in that frame, but my my mother always said, good job. My mother, the slightest uh, progress, good job. You're smart. You're good. She told me, she told all of us that. And I guess everybody hears things differently, but as a baby boomer, I went to a grade school in Center City, well, not Center City, but in Philadelphia, with 2,500 children, Catholic wow. grade school, and Sister Mary Cellophane, as my father would call her, would click the clicker, <laughs> <laughs> and we obeyed, and it was all about discipline. <laughs> so so well, you were I a mean, rule follower, I'll say. I'm you know, a rule because, follower. You know, I, I, I went to Catholic school as well, and, yeah. and some people... It's not a bad rules, thing. Some didn't. Yeah. yeah. But but I think I have a touch of OCD, but if you use it to do a good job and dot your I's and cross your T's, it's a good thing. Yeah. If it keeps you from functioning, then it get ahead. It can get ahead of you. But I think too, uh, I remember my mother would polish my black and white saddle shoes every night. The white and the oh, black. The saddle shoes. Starch oh shirt. We would put our blouses on and we couldn't move the sleeves because she would dip them in <laughs> linen starch. And so when second grade, when I won the Miss Neat Award. I, I said, that's a good thing. Oh, boy. In second grade, you won the Miss Neat Award. Miss Neat. Okay, so that says something. So we lived in the city, uh, and my sisters all graduated and went to high school in the city. And then we moved to the suburbs when I was in sixth grade. And my city school had 100 children per classroom with three classes per grade. And I moved to St. Andrews and Drexel Hill, and there were only 50 children in a room. We had 150 per grade. And I... I didn't know what to do. I, I was looking for Timmy and Lassie because they're just, where are the other 150 kids in my class? But that was a big adjustment. And I had never had my hair cut. I got to seventh grade and I was able to sit on my hair. And my sister yeah. said, you can't wear two braids in seventh grade. It's not cool. So my image <laughs> changed when they put a big- These are big problems. This, uh, these are, this was big a problems. lot to overcome. I was very self-conscious. So they put it in a ponytail and made one long braid and I was, uncomfortable till I got to school and there was one other girl in the class that had a long braid and she smoked cigarettes so oh. I knew I was cool <laughs> so I got by with that but anyhow they're the kinds of things that you remember and you either sink or swim and my poor father we had a girl parakeet we had a girl beagle I mean that poor man really was <laughs> drowning and stockings hanging in the bathroom and perfume and everything all over the he house was way he outnumbered. Did it well. oh god bless him yeah but um anyway that really readied me for GI, or maybe it's the reverse. I chose to go into gastroenterology as the first woman to train in New York City. But it didn't dawn on me that there were no other GI Josephines there. It, it didn't bother me. I was already uh, conditioned to just do my work, put my head down, do my work, and 
enjoy it. Were you acknowledged for that? Did you receive awards for being the um, first woman? No, and I don't think that in itself deserves an award. I I will say it was New York was like a different planet. I loved it. I was a little afraid of it. Mm. Um, and I will say one of the lessons I've learned or one of the things I like about people uh, or I, I like to think I'm assertive and I'll ask questions or I'll look into things. I, I'm not drawn to overly aggressive people. Mm. And I think it takes a little bit of assertion to walk into a room of different people, be it a, a woman in a group of men or different country or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I learned that. I am joined by Dr. Marianne Ritchie, Associate Professor of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital here in Philadelphia. And um, if, if there's someone listening, whether it's a parent or a student thinking about medical school, what are some of the things you would say are a sign that perhaps you will be a good doctor? Um, and, and maybe there isn't something. Maybe everybody is different. But I'm wondering if a parent has a child and they're thinking about it, is there something that points to they would, they're sure. su- suited for med school? Um, medical school is an entity in itself. But just like being a bio major, when I was a biology major, we were in the lab from one to five o'clock, three days a week, when everybody else had two or three hours of class a day and they were in the cafeteria playing pinochle or off to another job or something. It's, it's very intense. Medical school to me was doable, but it was like memorizing phone books of information. It was a lot. The style has changed now. There's a little bit less memorization and more critical thinking. Um, all kinds of personalities, and that's good because patients come from all backgrounds and we need diverse doctors. But um, to to go through anything well in life, you have to have focus. But medical school involves focus, but also the training now involves being a polite, caring, empathetic human being. And there are different fields. If you do just radiology all the time, you're not really dealing with patients. I mean, sometimes you are. It's not that black and white. But if a parent wants their child or they think there's a spark there, they have to make sure their child really wants it. I would mm. say that's rule number one. It's intense enough that if you don't want it and you're doing it for somebody else, and that, again, if your mother wants you to be a singer and you really don't want to do it. It's never a good thing. Yes. Uh, but I would suggest that if a student has an inkling that they go and shadow a doctor. Can I watch you in the office? Um, can I watch an operation? And it's not, do I have the stomach to watch somebody have belly surgery or their broken bone fixed? Yep. It's a combination of all those things. Combination. Dr. Marianne Ritchie, who is the Associate Professor of Medicine at Jefferson University Hospital here in Philadelphia. Thanks for listening to a special encore of Women to Watch. For more information and to hear the full interview, go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. This is the Women to Watch. When life isn't perfect, imperfection becomes a trait of everything in it. Today we're going to talk about pointing out flaws or not. Following Prophet Muhammad's advice, people should not point out the flaws of anyone or anything for that matter. So it doesn't just apply to people, but also to food that we do not like or anything that is not to our taste. The premise is that when we're discussing a flaw in someone else, 
we're immediately placing ourselves in a higher or better position. Pointing out flaws, even in the privacy of our own thoughts, is a reason for arrogance and a kind of supremacy. Quote, O you who believe, no people shall ridicule other people, for they may be better than they. Nor shall any women ridicule other women, for they may be better than they. Nor shall you slander one another, nor shall you insult one another with names. This verse, in chapter 49, in the Quran, prohibits any kind of mockery, and later states that whoever does that is indeed causing injustice. But we're all human, and noticing these things is sometimes out of hand. Well, think that every time we see a flaw is a chance to be thankful for what we have. Looking at our own shortcomings will bring humility and compassion so that we address and tolerate other people's imperfections with more grace. How perfect would the world be if our imperfections are overlooked? Well, it's hard to overlook that prophetic ethic. This is Hanadi, and if this conversation is interesting for you, connect with me on hanadispeaksout.com. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Tonight's Women to Watch program features an encore of some of our favorite interviews with Watch Team members. As always, visit womentowatch.net for the real story behind the title. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you tonight. Our guest this evening is international award-winning speaker, and media expert Hanadi Shahabuddin. Hanadi, I'm so excited to have you, and I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Well, thank you so for inviting me. I'm really excited. So I want to talk about, uh, right off the bat, I want to talk about your, your early years growing up in Lebanon, and I understand you were uh, one of four siblings. Yes. So I come from Lebanon. It's a beautiful, tiny spot on the Mediterranean. And um, as uh, the country's, uh, you know, the um, population is divided into uh, 40% Muslims and 40% Christians. So I come from a a multi-religious background that helped me do the work that I'm doing today. One of the things I read, Hanadi, was that um, your father passed away at a young age when you were only 13 years old. That must have been very difficult for you, and I wonder how that um, has affected you. It has, and, um, you know, it's it's a U-turn in my life, as in every child that loses a parent. And luckily, I was raised with a very strong mother that uh, nurtured us and um, did her best to grow 
you know, to, to raise us in a very special way, exposed to the world where we can dream big and accomplish big things. She has always uh, had our back, and um, I owe a lot of my success to her. Yes, and, you know, you, you've you spoken about how um, growing up, you as a family enjoyed kind of, you know, sitting around the table and talking about religion, um, but that your mom really understood that everyone's spiritual practice has to come from within and uh, elaborate on that for me definitely so we we were born into a muslim family and my mom had always had the discussion of islam as a religion um in the background um as a way to expose us to the religion encourage us to practice it but never ever to force it upon us or uh, shove it down our throat so basically that gave us the chance to uh, really connect with the religion from a distance. And uh, while I was growing up, I had a lot of the misconceptions that some of the people now have about Islam. And early in my youth, I did not really want to commit totally, or at least I did not want to be you know, shown to be a Muslim. I did not want to identify as a Muslim. Um, I had other things on my mind. I was traveling the world, um, and I pursued uh, higher education in London. So, the, you know, pr- committing to the religion was not on top of my priorities. But then things uh, started taking shape, and you know how uh, you grow into becoming a more thoughtful adult, and this is where my interest started taking, um, you know, my interest in the religion itself um, started to happen. Yes, you know, I think one of the things that I find so remarkable, remarkable, excuse me, about you and the work that you're doing is is the courage that it's taking to, you know, stand up and speak out about this topic. And so the listeners understand, you know, all of the work that you're doing, the speaking, um, uh, the workshops and the volunteer work as well is all to try to help Americans um, change their perspective of Muslims. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was that you say Muslims are afraid too. When we talk about the fear, um, tell me about the the fear that Muslims have and do you think it's a different type of fear than Americans have? It's, it's definitely a different type of fear. Uh, you know, when you walk into a classroom and people have a specific or you walk into a meeting, and people have a specific notion of you, a very confirmed notion in their mind. And you walk into that meeting or that classroom, um, starting from a specific uh, point, um, it's either you have to justify or deny or work with or... So, you know, it's very conflicting because the perception of Muslims is very prominent, is very uh, powerful uh, about Muslims. So people have to deal with it. They're very aware of how they are perceived, and they're struggling with it. The fear comes from being misunderstood, from being judged, from being, you know, confirming some of the uh, misconceptions that people might have about Muslims. You know, um, it's very, uh, people are very conscious of it. It's in the foreground. So, the, you know, that 
that marginalization um, takes shape on the whole community. And um, it reflects on the, you know, Muslims' behavior, either as I want to identify or do not want to identify or do not want to deal with the whole thing. So different people react to it differently, but there is a collective feeling of uh, being perceived in a specific way. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to a special encore of Women to Watch. For more information and to hear the full interview, go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Now, the Women to Watch Health Watch. From Jefferson University Hospital, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Got milk? Not if you're lactose intolerant. Lactose is a sugar in milk and dairy products, and you need a chemical called lactase in your intestine to digest the lactose. Without it, lactose can ferment in your colon and turn to acids and hydrogen gas. Symptoms, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea, crampy abdominal pain, maybe even loud bowel sounds. Sometimes it's mistaken for irritable bowel syndrome. Diagnosis, well, there are stool, blood, breath tests, even bowel biopsies, but they're cumbersome and have limitations. We usually make the diagnosis in patients who have mild symptoms a few hours after dairy ingestion, two servings in a day, or one serving that's not with a meal, and then symptoms that resolve completely after avoiding lactose five to seven days. It's common. About 70% of the world population is lactose intolerant. Inherited in certain groups of people, African, Asian, Hispanic, and Native American descent, less commonly in some Mediterranean groups. You don't have to completely eliminate dairy. Most people can tolerate up to two cups a day, divided into two meals. Usually we don't see symptoms in children under age six, sometimes in premature babies 28 to 32 weeks because their lactase activity hasn't developed yet. You can acquire it with other intestinal issues like celiac, Crohn's disease, maybe after surgery or chemo. And if you have a GI bug, you may have temporary lactose intolerance. So eliminate milk until you feel better. Treatment, lactate pills before you eat. Lactate milk isn't 100% free. Drink enough and you'll get symptoms. Better choice? Almond milk has more calcium. Read labels. Avoid foods with butter, cream, and milk. Non-dairy creamers and toppings may contain lactose. Different cheeses have different amounts. Swiss and cheddar are friendlier. Eat calcium-rich foods, broccoli, almonds, shellfish. So divas, if Little Miss Muffin invites you for dinner and offers curds and whey, you say, no way. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley-Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. 
Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Watch. Hi, everybody. Holly Dowling here with your Leadership Watch, and I am passionate about the topic today, praise and recognition. And do we really understand what that means? Praise and recognition is one of the most powerful motivators, and yet we, again, take this for granted. we got to match people to the praise and recognition that is meaningful and important. Do you know what matters to the people on your team, to the people you're leading? Because just because it matters to you doesn't mean it matters to them. First question to ask yourself and ask the people on your teams when you get back to work tomorrow, what is the best praise or recognition you've ever received? And what made it so good? You see, two simple questions that can completely change the landscape of how people are showing up and how they're being recognized. And can I speak loudly to you leaders? Don't wait till the end of the year big celebration. It's called mini milestones, giving people recognition for mini milestones. So I, I'm going to give you an example in a story because I'm passionate about this and we could talk about this for hours. A leader, I challenged a leader and I said, you know, you give everybody, this person said to me, oh, we do Friday's day off. Right. And many of you do this. You know, if your team hits a milestone or they've been working really hard, you give them a Friday off. I challenged the leader and I said, go ask the people on your team on your next one on one. Tell me about the best praise and recognition. And this individual on this team for 10 years, the response to this leader was, you always give us Fridays off, but it means nothing to me because you see my wife has Mondays off. A simple shift by asking a question can change the landscape. What are you doing? Some people love public recognition. Some people hate it. Some people love a personal letter. How about writing a note and letting them know how much they mean to you? You see, I'm passionate about this. And because of this, I have taken all of this wisdom and nuggets after 15 years of working with leaders and have extraordinary leader. Learn more about it. HollyDowling.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Tonight's Women to Watch program features an encore of some of our favorite interviews with Watch Team members. As always, visit womentowatch.net for the real story behind the title. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this evening by Hanadi Shahabadeen. And Hanadi is a media expert, international speaker, um, award-winning international speaker, I should mention, and also a consultant on diversity and inclusion. You were talking about really what your mother has taught you about the freedom to choose um, what your spirituality is going to be. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and find out in the work that you're doing, how we can encourage more people to have that open-mindedness. I think we start by having genuine conversation. Um, A lot of Americans are worried about being offensive or about being... um, not so open to conversation. Um, I believe we start by hosting those events, nurturing the environment 
whereby people can ask questions, create those safe spaces. Um, and and that's, that's primarily what I try to do. I find a lot of people more open when I have a training session or a keynote, and a lot of people want to have that one-to-one conversation with me. Uh, I had one person coming after um, a conference on human resources come to me and say, and this person was a person of color as well, and she said, I had to say I forced myself to come to your session because I had fear. Uh, you know, I was fearing Muslims, and your session clarified a lot. So I think, you know, everybody has a, a responsibility to address um, um, some of the biases that we might have towards a minority that we're not familiar with, with or that we think are very different from us. If you look at the numbers, 35% of Americans perceive Muslims negatively. You know, my question is, where are we addressing that? How are we being part of the solution in bridging the divide that America is having um, on this crossroads? Why do you think that you are the one, Hanadi, to, to, to speak out and, and change the perception? That's a very good question. Um, I believe being a Lebanese, uh, a place where multi-religious communities live side by side and have 90% uh, favorable opinions of each other gives me a very uh, powerful foundation to talk to people from different faiths. Um, I also believe that my um, media background helps me, and branding background, helps me be more outspoken about my faith. People have come up to you at different um, functions and events and and asked all kinds of questions. I wanted to ask you first, you know, what's one of the questions you've received from someone that has surprised you the most and uh, about your uh, your your religion and your culture? Um, the, the, the one question that I get almost in every presentation is, why do you have to wear your head cover in America? You don't have to. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the first time, the first time I heard that, I laughed. I'm like, what makes you think that I have to? Why, you know, being in America is very empowering because of the religious freedom that people have. What makes you think that in America I have to, you know, wear a head cover? It's my choice. I choose to wear it because it empowers me. And it brings my femininity across, and it makes me share more comfortably my thoughts and aspirations without any distraction. That's how my head cover empowers me. But people haven't heard this perspective. You know, when I started blogging, my first blog was called As a Muslima. A Muslima is a female woman in, in Arabic. And in that blog, I just talked about my perspective as a woman living in America. How is that Muslim woman perspective being um, received? You know, what can people, can, can we start this conversation about our different perspectives as, as multicultural women? So that is one of the questions that I always get. And, you know, another one is, do you take a shower with the head cover? (laughs) 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 Very ridiculous. But, you know, at home, we do not wear our head cover. In front of close family, we do not wear it. (laughs) So small things that people might think are silly questions, but these are extremely important questions to ask.
Listen, real quickly, if, if someone's listening and wants to be in touch with you to have you come and speak to their community, where can they find you? Um, my website is uh, hanadispeaksout.com, H-A-N-A-D-I, speaksout.com. Um, you can go through the website and there is a speaker submission form uh, that they can um, reach out to me. Um, okay. And you know, they can add me on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I'm always very easy to reach. Okay. And we'll be sharing your information as well, Hanadi. I thank you so much um, for taking the time to share your story with us today. I wish you continued success. Thank you success. so much, too. Thank, thank you. you. Stay in touch. Thanks for listening to a special encore of Women to Watch. For more information and to hear the full interview, go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Now, the Women to Watch, Legal Watch. Hi, this is Carol Weinman with Legal Watch. If you're a parent, you're all too familiar with that feeling of concern you get when you look at your phone and you see the call is from your child's school. If you're a parent of a child with special needs, concern is more like mm, a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. Alarm bells go off and you're likely thinking, oh, what now? I'm working on a case of a child with autism who at 17 for the first time decides to expose himself during school. Neither the mother nor the school know quite how to handle it. Mom, not knowing what to do, immediately called me. Luckily, the school didn't call in the police or press charges, but they could have. Mom is worried her son could be headed for more trouble. There's no telling what he could do next. Being proactive in these cases is a wise choice. I consult with numerous parents who could have never imagined the call from school requesting they pick up their child who is now in police custody. Your child's legal rights must be implemented immediately upon arrest. The stakes are just too high. You can't afford to assume the school will be lenient or withdraw charges. Once the police are contacted, the legal process is set in motion and you should contact a criminal attorney right away. If your child has special needs or an IEP, then you also need a lawyer who knows your child's rights under special education law because the attorney must know how to evaluate an IEP crisis or behavior plan and assess the school's conduct as well. That's where criminal law and special education law can intersect. For more information, contact me at autismlegal.com or call 215-591-3614. Attorney and leading autism expert Carol Weinman offers one-of-a-kind solutions to your legal and autism needs. Recognized nationwide as the one and only autism legal expert, Weinman delivers exceptional results. Weinman is a master at putting together pieces to create a remarkable outcome. Contact Weinman at 215-591-3614 or at autismlegal.com. That's autismlegal.com. Carol Weinman, the leading nationwide expert autism attorney. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives, and her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. 
Tonight's Women to Watch program features an encore of some of our favorite interviews with Watch Team members. As always, visit womentowatch.net for the real story behind the title. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be back in the studio with a very special guest who's joining me this evening and happens to be our very own in-house legal contributor, Carol Weinman. She's going to be joining me in just a moment. Carol is an attorney. She's a consultant, a speaker, and an expert in autism. And Carol's story of determination to find her calling is truly inspirational. Carol, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. I'm very excited about this. I love the concept of the story behind the title. Well, I appreciate that. And you and I, we met, you know, sometimes timing is everything. We <laughs> met years ago um, at an event and uh, years later, you know, you reached out to me and it was just perfect timing to bring you on as part of the show. And now today to share your own story behind your title of lawyer and autism expert and speaker and consultant. So I'm excited to dive right in. And I wanted to start with a quote, uh, because I think this says a lot about who you are and what has driven you to do the work that you're doing. You said to me in a conversation, what I searched for my whole life was what mattered to me and what I should be doing. So talk for a few minutes about what that means to you and why it connects directly to you as a young girl growing up in Cheltenham, I should mention, right here outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, born and bred in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> uh, my roots are here. Yes, I spent the better part of my life from the time I was very young on some level trying to figure out what really was important to me and what I was passionate about and what I was committed to. And Somewhere along the way, I just had this internal drive to have my work be my passion. And I never saw it as a job. I never saw it as a nine to five. It was always about making a difference in the world, impacting people on a big level, feeling that I had really contributed. And it was a very winding road for me to get to where I am today. Yeah. I started out, I uh, had a natural talent at a very young age for writing. So I started out in communications and got my undergraduate degree in communications and went out and about in the world and did, uh, I was a writer first, then I was an account executive doing slide presentations of all things. And then I was the head of an advertising department in New York City and then decided, you know what, this just isn't feeling like I'm making, uh, it wasn't meaningful enough. Mm, And what could I do next? Right. And what could I also do that would be more independent that I could do on my own. Mm -hmm. And it was at that juncture that I was even thinking ahead about five years out, what could I do that I could be independent, more entrepreneurial? Right. And that's when I started to look at law. I went into law to really help people and make a difference. Yeah. And after I got in it, I found that wasn't as easy as I had hoped it would be (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I was up against some very big systems out there that have been in force for many, many years and are not quick to change. Right. That has been a very challenging task for me to try to make an impact on a system 
that has some investment in staying the same. I want to go back for just a second because I think a key part of your story is your family and, and your place in that family. And you were the youngest of four. And I love that mom and dad were married for 72 years, which is quite unusual, <laughs> and um, raised in, uh, as you mentioned, Cheltenham. And you had mentioned to me that you have three siblings, two are attorneys and one is a doctor. So those are high achieving people. And you were the, the baby that felt kind of Perhaps that wasn't the path you were meant to go, but yet you later decided to do that. So talk to me about that conflict of feeling you were different than everyone else in the family and yet then going on to to become a professional yourself. And then we'll talk about what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah, I always felt very different. And being the youngest of four, I felt like I was in the shadows a lot of my siblings. They were very accomplished and I hadn't gotten there yet. And I would look at them and always be comparing myself. And uh, I was the one in the family that was more creative. I, you know, listened to a different drummer, so to speak. I, I had emotional intelligence, a very high emotional, what we call today emotional intelligence. Uh, and my family was not like that. My parents were not like that. My siblings were not like that. They were more into conforming and, and following the straight the straight line. Uh, I was never into conforming. Uh, and I think that growing up in that, um, I found that I always had to battle and fight my way up to have a voice mm-hmm. and to be heard and to be acknowledged and validated for how I was different. And oddly enough, I think that that has served me well as I got older to why I advocate as well as I do and to why I always want to be a voice for others mm-hmm. uh, and why I have always wanted to champion the underdog. I think it traces back to some of my roots right. of being in an environment where I felt like I was doing that for myself. Mm-hmm. And and I never really felt that anybody got me. I really never thought they understood me. And that's also translated really well into my work. It's really funny when you look back and the picture starts to become clearer mm-hmm. in that um I, I often get feedback from the clients I work with, boy, Carol, you really get it and you really understand and there's a certain empathy. And I really think that somewhere along the line, that became very important to me, not only to do for myself, but to have other people not feel alone, not feel that they were the odd ones out, to to know, know that there were other people like them and that there were other people that understood and that there were other people that supported them. Yeah, you, you know, the irony of that is... Um, it, it's hard to feel different than everyone else when in actuality it's it's amazing to be different, right? Because we're always teaching our kids, don't be like everyone else. Don't follow and do what everyone else is doing. So there's so much irony in that. I want you to talk for a few minutes about your grandma because your grandmother um, was a, a great influence in your life and someone who I would imagine you are innately like. I'd like to believe that because I, I really admired her. Yeah. Listen, I thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening and sharing your story. Carol, we'll be looking for your segments in the weeks to come. Okay. Thanks so much, Sue, for having me. Thanks for listening to a special encore of Women to Watch. For more information and to hear the full interview, go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Now, the Women to Watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso of Pathways Consulting Group. 
The last couple of weeks, my segments have been about the lack of women in the technology industry and why it matters and what steps we can take to closing the gap. To recap, although more companies are including women in their technology roadmap, the percentages of women earning computer science degrees keeps decreasing. To break the cycle, we must address the issue top down and bottom up. Tonight, I'd like to close the loop on my series and talk about how we as adults can influence young girls to look at technology differently. Before I dive in, I want to stress why I believe it matters. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employment in computer systems design and related services will grow by 3.9% compared with the national industry average of 1.3. Clearly, the tech industry is the place to be for job seekers, and I believe this number will grow. With so much opportunity, getting young girls interested at an early age without forcing it on them is key. To foster a love for something, you need to make it a part of everyday life. To do this, we need to spark a young girl's interest in science, technology, engineering, and math activities. Play-Doh-to-Play-Toe.com is an incredible website that provides awesome ideas. Pour a rainbow into a jar, uses everyday household ingredients to create a magical jar full of colors that can be displayed. The next time you're at the beach, make a sand volcano. All you need is a bucket of sand, vinegar, baking soda, and it creates a great fun activity. Madewithcode.com was started because increasingly more aspects of our lives are powered by technology, yet women aren't represented in the roles that make technology happen. They have great activities to teach girls about computer coding, like make the next film or design the next trend in fashion. With Google at your fingertips, it doesn't take much effort to find fun ways to foster a girl's interest through activity without forcing technology on them. If you're interested in more great websites and articles, contact me at mary at pathwayscg.com. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And sign up for our newsletter to stay in the know. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well. A big shout out and thank you to our sponsors and contributors for helping us to tell the real story behind the title. Here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great week. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.